Welcome to the On The Way podcast. It is uh, just me flying solo in this episode today. Uh, Dom Fay here with you um, from the northwest coast of Spain at the moment where I am joined by one of our favorite guests of the podcast over the journey, anthropologist, theologian, author, among many, many other things, Alexander John Shire uh, joins me, I think for the third time on the On The Way podcast, but the first time in person, Alexander John um, thank you for, for joining the podcast again, and thank you for letting me stay here in your beautiful house for a few nights at the moment. It's a delight. Um, so and to, we, are, we are sitting here really at the edge of the Atlantic Sea. Yes, we are. We, are. we went the other day to, to see the last um, light over Europe. Um, where was that? Around the corner from here? Uh, it's a lighthouse called uh, Kaba Turinen, mm. where the last ray of light strikes the European continent. And you told me that if I looked directly across the ocean and had amazing vision, I'd be looking at New York. So that's you would <laughs> some sort of a side of where just we about are. five thousand miles away. <laughs> <laughs> so very amazing vision yeah, would be required. Yeah. Um, so I have had the great gift of staying here with you for a few days. We've shared some great meals, some great conversations. The gluten-free bread in Spain has uh, has changed my life. It's been something of a religious experience. Um, all celiac should get their way to Australia. Sorry, to Spain, I think, and, and try the bread here. Um, but one of the conversations we've shared over our drives and over lunch was around Easter. Um, and the, what you talk about is the great 100 days of Easter. And at one particular point in this conversation, I think I turned to you and said, would you do a podcast with me while I'm, I'm here? This wasn't originally in the planning, but I, I thought it was too um, rich. In, in the middle of a fabulous meal, you say, yes. would you do a podcast? <laughs> That's pretty much it. I thought we should finish the meal first so you don't hear the chewing sounds. But, but I do think this is too rich um, material for, for it not to be captured while we're here. And I just happen to have my podcasting gear in my suitcase with me. So we are sitting down to talk about Easter um, and particularly your work on recapturing what Easter originally was because what we we now see is the celebration of Easter over a year of um I suppose a, a three four day festival uh going from Thursday night through to Sunday where we tell this historical story um of the death and resurrection of Jesus that the way we see Easter today is not really where Easter began or what Easter began as um, so this is where we're going to look at today, what Easter originally was. But if, if I asked you maybe for a starting point with this conversation, because this is something you did share with me at lunch, that you did grow up with the same Easter that most of us would know, that we would recognize as our Easter celebration. Can you tell me when you became aware uh, in your own personal journey that there was something more to Easter than what you, uh, I guess, had, had been given? So, yes, I grew up with the Easter that I think most of us are very familiar with, and in, in the Catholic tradition, something called Holy Week. Um, I began to discover uh, an, an ancient form that lives before Holy Week in 1975 when I was taking a course on the Gospel of John by the what I think is the greatest scholar of the Gospel of John, Raymond Brown. And Raymond Brown began to open up how that gospel was the only Easter experience that early Christianity would have known. Just because a gospel text has a story of resurrection, that's not Easter. Mm. At, at least that, it was not the original Easter. And he opened that gospel and why, for a lot of Christianity today, Easter is only found in the Gospel of John and what's in that Gospel and how it really affects a present moment, increase in vitality, compassion, creativity, reconciliation, uh, love, justice, all those wonderful words that we think of. But it's a present moment experience. It's not about what happens at the end of one's life. And um, as uh, Christianity today has gotten stuck in history, uh, it, it, we have a historical root, but we're not about history. We're about a present moment ex living experience. Mm. So for the first 200 years of, of the Christian tradition, they celebrated Easter 52 times a year. Every Sunday was Easter, is Easter. Still today, if you do the, the study of what Sunday is, it's Easter. Well, what do you mean by it was Easter? What, well, what, what because like? they because every Sunday when they came together, they celebrated um, living through death into greater life, and they did that through the great story of Jesus the Christ's death and resurrection mm. as an ongoing mystery that we participate with. Yeah, 
Yeah. So this was every Sunday. This was what the gathering was. Right. So Christianity celebrates Easter 52 times a year. Mm. Why would we do something on one of the 52 Easter's that we don't do the other 51? And that begins to happen in the third century. And I don't know if you want me to tell that story. Yes, please do. Please do. All right. So all of my work is about what is going on in people's lived experience that would necessitate or call forth the creation of, quote unquote, Christianity doing something. So what's going on in the late 200s as we move into the 300s? Uh, from the 3rd into the 4th century of Christianity. Well, the best I can understand, uh, Roman persecution was lessening. Now, as long as Christianity was persecuted, and by by persecuted, I mean we were criminals, Mm. and if caught, we were likely to be executed. So when, when you're living in that reality, you don't communicate with other communities very much. You're very insular. You're literally uh, living for each other and praying that the emperor doesn't find out where you are. Yeah, yeah. As the oppression begins to lift, we Christians are have a natural curiosity. Oh, tell me, tell me how you celebrate Sunday. Tell me what you do. What's your community life like? And what starts out with this incredible sense of really true wonderful curiosity quickly becomes oh no we don't believe that you believe that <laughs> you do what <laughs> and and so the variation of christianity becomes very present across the mediterranean and we understand that during all the the time of the persecution when we haven't been able to communicate people have been developing very different ideas in very different ways of expressing Christianity. And now dogmatic thought or uh, theological judgments begin to come into the tradition in a very strong way. And Christianity understands at this moment that this is the death throes of the tradition. Hmm. That what is the foundation of our tradition is is that we are a people who welcome everyone to the table that diversity is our hallmark and the moment that we start to have theological police or theological judgments we're on the quick road to really harming the great heart of our tradition which is to understand that as individual people that we can find that place that we are a community that harmonizes and builds each other up. Not because we think alike, not even because in essence we believe alike, but that we, we, but we have a common practice mm. uh, around things like justice and reconciliation and love. So anyway, what, what Christianity recognizes now is that unless... We have a time every year when each community stops and remembers what its core values and core practices are, that we're going to lose it. Hmm. And so what Christianity does is it creates a three-day experience. And it's sort of a two-day retreat and a one-day festival. And these three days are going to happen around the historical time of Jesus' death and resurrection in the springtime. Again, remember, every Sunday is Easter. But we're going to do this special Easter around the historical days of Jesus' death and resurrection because we as a community need to open ourselves up in love to each other and greater love of the Holy One, our God. So we take two days to reflect on the small things that we've held too close to ourselves and they've become stumbling blocks to our sense of oneness. Um, And then we have one great day 
which is a festival day, which is Easter. And it happens this way. So for two days, the community essentially lives together. We pray. We're not eating very much. We're not sleeping very much. We're really, we're really asking the Holy One to help us let go of the small things, the small pebbles in our shoes that keep us from really, really loving that other person who talks too much in our minds or eats with their mouth open or what all, all, of, all of that small personality stuff that gradually begins to build up as a grievance and a stumbling block to our wanting to see each other as part of the one body of the Christus. All right, so mm-hmm. we've got two days of reflection and then we've got the one great night uh, leading to the great morning. And so it happens this way. Uh, after sunset on Saturday, we gather for the first ritual of Easter, which is foot washing. Now, immediately, all of us who know the Holy Week paradigm so well think, well, no, foot washing historically was the night before Jesus died, and it's sort of two days before the resurrection. No, 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 no. This is not early Christianity at all. Foot washing is the great ritual of death and resurrection. Because death and resurrection is a present moment experience, Mm. we're going to see our life as a continual pattern of death resurrection. And we've just had now two days of praying and reflecting and asking God to remove those small things that keep us from truly loving and honoring and esteeming each other. And so now we come to this great ritual of foot washing that um, we have largely not seen appropriately because we have forgotten that foot washing in the Middle East was part of most cultures' marriage ritual. Right, okay, sure. And that Jesus, in this text of the foot washing, if Jesus was taking the role of servant, the foot washing would have happened before dinner and shortly after people arrived or even at the door. That's not what the text says. The text says that in the midst of dinner, Jesus begins the foot washing, And something else, Jesus removes his robe. Uh, Not even a servant would remove one's robe because in that day for a Jewish man to remove his robe means that he appears in the way that only his parents or his spouse would ever see him. Literally, Jesus is standing before everyone at table Um, with his BBDs. This was shocking. Mm. We we, We don't see the text in that way. We don't understand that what Jesus is about to do is paramount to the intimacy of marriage, where Jesus in this moment of the foot washing is appearing before us as our betrothed. Yeah, right, right. And you can now begin to understand why this was the great Easter ritual. Yeah. Because when we can stand before each other with the same desire of intimacy and care of the betrothal, that is a living death resurrection right now. Hmm. It's a death resurrection in our heart where we've lessened our own eyeness a little bit. We don't want to, our eyeness is beautiful. But we've lessened our I-ness just enough so that we can also live as a we. Yeah. Yes. So this this whole Easter celebration was primarily about how do we do community. Absolutely. It's about how we build community because we are the first pan-tribal spiritual community that we know of in human history. There uh, There may have been other traditions that did this. But we're the first that did it and left a record of it. And what I mean is that if at this moment in first, second century, common error, um, and especially in the Mediterranean world, 
People of differing tribes and different ethnicities don't mix with each other. Mm. People of differing genders don't pray together. Even at this moment in, in our brother and sister Jewish life, men are up front and women are behind, or men are on the floor and women are in the balcony. Christianity is the first tradition that we have a historical record that said, we have a table and we have chairs, come sit with each other. And the first tradition that said, literally, it no longer matters who your mother is. No longer matters what your bloodline is. No longer matters whether you're wealthy or poor. No longer matters whether you're free or slave. All of that, this is, this is an incredible sociological moment in human history. And today I celebrate that it's a more generally acceptable way to live. We've still got our challenges today, but go back 2,000 years ago. This is totally revolutionary. Mm. And it's interesting because I think if there's one word that sums up a lot of what we've seen in the world over the last um, 10, 15 years, it might be tribalism and a, a return of tribalism. Um, you know, you can see the good parts of this that people through various um, internet forums have been able to find maybe their niche, their area, their sort of people, and there's safety and encouragement that comes with that but we've also seen that people of differing religious views political views um, football teams they follow even at the far extreme aren't really sharing life together aren't um, bridging the divide but are, are living very much in their sort of enclaves um, against one another and so this this easter story i find it so interesting when we were having this conversation because I, I shared with you that so much of the easter i was raised in was a private affair it was a, a, you know, basically, you know, and I don't want to be too harsh on it, but it was a sit down and see how guilty you can feel for your role in the sinfulness of humanity that has led to this, this crucifixion. And so, in a sense, it almost became the ultimate tribal um, celebration because the question was, are you in or are you out? Are you one of those who hears this story and takes it seriously and accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior and all of that? Or if not, you're out and you're against us. But this, this original right was the antithesis of that. And, and what people can't see is how vigorously I'm going, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they didn't, they didn't decide to start celebrating this once a year so we could all sit and feel guilty about the death of Jesus together. They did this because they realized that to do community together, to live with one another with differences is really difficult work. And we need an annual celebration to remember it, how. It's, it, it's always going to be difficult work. We're never going to get to the point where we've got this all down or resolved or done or finished. We are always uh, going to need to pull up a new chair at the table. We're mm -hmm. always going to want to have our door open and a new chair at the table. And that chair at the table is not for somebody like me. Yeah, it's yeah. for somebody that's not like me. Yes, and yes. we've got all the beautiful diversity of sexuality and, and ethnicity and, and the whole range that we see in, in the human face today. Mm. All of those people that are not like me is who that, that, that chair is sitting there for. Do you know, I'm mindful of a comment of Parker Palmer's that Sue uses often when she is speaking, which is something along the lines of the true definition of community is when there is at least one person present who I wish wasn't there. Um, if that isn't the case, you'd probably, you might not have true community. Uh, and I think that speaks to the maybe the work of Easter. Do you think this is why this version of Easter, this telling of Easter, has become less popular compared to the privatized guilt trip of Easter because that one you don't really have to do a lot <laughs> there's, there's almost a magic exchange that occurs with the death of Jesus all the work's done dust your hands and, and off you go whereas this telling of Easter puts the impetus squarely on us to ask how are we going to live with one another and open the realm of love even wider because in this Easter everything that we see Jesus do mm. that's what we have to do yeah <laughs> Yeah. It's not simply adoring what, quote-unquote, he did, but it's recognizing that exactly what Jesus does is what I now must do. Yeah, that's so different, isn't it? From I just, I just keep thinking about all the songs we sing at Easter and all the various ways we celebrate Easter and how very few of them turn us to, at least in my experience, I don't want to speak for everybody, but very few of them turn us to one another. They turn us to our relationship with the divine, perhaps, but, but rarely shoulder to shoulder with 
brother and sister. Um, I, I'm curious because you mentioned a few times that Christianity was the first that we have on record pan-tribal community that, that decided to live shoulder to shoulder with one another, regardless of different beliefs, different practices, that we are, we are a sort of a universal um, humanity here in, in this, this tradition. Um, you mentioned to me when we were talking that Christianity was never meant to have a holy land. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, it, it's the same idea because um, uh, our, our, our great mother tradition, Judaism, has the beautiful, true teaching that we are all equal before God. And Judaism said, and let's organize as households. And each household is separate but equal. So all the various ethnicities or bloodlines would be organized in their place, and we would understand our equalness and our worthiness before God. And Christianity goes that one extra step to say, well, let's all sit together, not in separate household equals before God, but let's truly be a human community of diversity before God and with God. So part of that is Judaism has a holy land, uh, especially the mount above the city of Jerusalem where the temple was built. Christianity was never intended to have a holy land in that way because our holy land is all people. Mm-hmm. Again, we, we have gone a, uh, away from, I think in my language, beyond the idea that we would have separate places that we worship God. And we would understand that our holy land is a table and an open door. Yeah. Yes. And, every, yeah. and everybody is welcome. Yeah. And so therefore, for 400 years, Christianity had no nostalgia about Israel or Jerusalem. Certainly, that is, it's honored because it's the historical anchor point to Jesus. But the truth of Jesus is not back there and not historically over there or not the way Jesus dressed or the way Jesus spoke. It is that every place on this planet and every grain of sand in the cosmos is our holy land. Because as soon as you have any one place as the holy land, you've disempowered the cosmos. <laughs> right, because you've excluded something. You've excluded something. And Christianity is that tradition that says, no, 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 no. Our holy land is the human heart. Our holy land is every grain of soil, sand, cell of air, breath, breath everywhere. That's where our God is. And so we don't have a mountaintop, we don't have a river, we don't have a beach, we don't have a valley, we don't have a road, we don't have any particular place. We have all of those places. Yeah, okay. Right, so so this annual celebration then of uh, maybe looking at images of a particular place in history and meditating or reflecting on that part of the Middle East as if that is where the sacred took place and lived and shared life and died and rose again. This actually limits us. It does limit us. I mean, there is a beauty in that. And I am a person who loves to go on pilgrimage to those historical places. Mm. But that pilgrimage should always bring me back home to understand that what I think I might have been awakened there is actually here in my heart and here between the two of us and everywhere. So that's wonderful. so that it was so important um, that, uh, that the Gospel of John became the text of this Easter because it unhooks us from the particularity of history. For instance, that meal that Jesus has with the disciples where he washes feet is not Passover. That's not a Passover meal. Passover hasn't happened yet. Read the text. (laughs) Five times in the text it says, before Passover, before Passover, before Passover. Jesus dies in the Gospel of John before Passover begins. Right. Right. That is not a Passover meal. The foot washing is not a Passover meal. And yet it is considered a communion ritual 
equal to the communion ritual of taking bread and wine. Hmm. So this is this is where we might need to when we're looking at the original Easter. What do we do with the the other three gospel accounts? Do we do we just ignore them for the Easter period? Is that the idea of Easter? It's not that I would ignore them, but I, I want to understand the focus of John's gospel. And from that, I can move back into the other three. Mm. But we can't get to the ancient Easter by using Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can only get to the ancient Easter by understanding and using the text in John. Because that's what they would read. That's what the early communities would read. It, it's, it's what the early communities used because they understood that John's grace or wisdom or teaching is about how two or more become one. That's the, that's the, the soil of the entire gospel yeah. is how two or more become one. And even before four gospels were named, John was the first gospel named by the Christian community in the second century as what as the as the gospel it's only later that we expand to have four gospels initially it was john was the gospel it was the most important gospel and it was the gospel of this retreat that the community had once a year in the springtime hmm. it's such a I'm, I'm i'm interested as i think about this and we've been talking about this just about how often i have and I think probably many of us do, just taken for granted what Easter and Christmas and these celebrations are. And I know we've had you on the podcast before talking about Christmas and an entirely different view of Christmas, and people can go and find that episode. But it had never occurred to me that Easter might have been anything other than a historical recognition of this death and resurrection of Jesus story. That, you know, I, I suppose I'd never stopped to ask, why did we start doing this? But when you peel back the layers and go right back there and you realize that they realized how deeply important it was to acknowledge how community happens and and maybe more importantly, what gets in the way of community happening and then return to this text, which was about how two or more become one. It just um, more than being powerful, I think it's so deeply uh, necessary for the world we find ourselves in today. Well, it is. And it's like. This did not resolve it. This did not take away all the stuffiness that lives between us. But it says to us once a year, we need to remember this, this, all this stuffness that lives is, it's always going to be here. Yeah. We're never going to be without it. Um, this is not about doing community perfectly. But it's about recognizing that you're either always moving deeper into communal life and oneness or you're moving away from it. It's, it's never about a static neutrality. Mm, okay. And so, and, and as a psychologist, I know what you do not reaffirm in a substantial way once a year, remember in a deep way once a year, you begin to lose. Hmm. And even in my language for warm and fuzzy St. Paul, you hear my humor. <laughs> um, I mean, St. Paul, in, in St. Paul's own language, what he's saying to us is uh, the body of Christ on the table is less in doubt. What's, what is greatly in doubt is the body of Christ around the table. That we go to the table to take of that grace uh, and we make it magical because we think that taking the bread and the wine does something in and of itself, whereas we don't realize that our work to be a family, a, a true community around the table, magnifies the grace on the table. When you've got the grace on the table and you've got the grace of people around the table reaching in themselves for greater oneness, then you've got a wow. Yeah. And I'm I'm just thinking about people listening to this at the moment who uh, may be a part of a, a church community where they could name the four or five people they find incredibly difficult to live alongside and people maybe in an extended family where one uncle or one auntie hasn't come to family Christmas for 20 years because of divisions or um, people with former partners, former friends there's been falling outs with, colleagues who they find difficult to live alongside, people in a small group who always are the ones who pipe up with the opinion they struggle to hear. All of our lives we experience this. It's sort of a universal human experience. 
is that it is difficult to live alongside those who don't see, think, believe the way we do. And sometimes also difficult to live alongside those who do see, think, believe the way we do. That this is such a deeply relevant human message. So I actually, I want to a little bit later on talk about the three days in particular and how they can be day by day by day um, for us this year and going forward, a space to acknowledge that within us, which keeps us apart from one another. Um, but I want to touch here on the the great hundred days, because this is a term you use, the great hundred days of Easter. Um, can you talk a, li- a little bit about the great hundred days? What what are the hundred days? And, um, and, and is this your terminology, the great hundred days? I think it may be my terminology, but it isn't something I created out of out of out of nothing. Um, it it's the great hundred days, which covers what traditionally today we have called Lent, Easter, and the Easter season. Okay. So the great hundred days begins with Transfiguration Sunday, and it extends ninety nine days later to Pentecost. Okay. So this great hundred days was the uh, annual Christian community retreat and festival. Uh, the retreat part is our reflecting on our desire to grow in oneness. And the festival part is celebrating that small increase in oneness, which becomes felt through the Easter experience. It's not focused on our guilt. It's not focused on our shame. It's not focused on how far away from God that I am. Absolutely not, because the whole thing begins um, on the Feast of the Transfiguration, which says that God and we are in a mirror relationship to each other. Yeah. Right. So, so the tradition of giving something up for Lent. Um, which I know we've spoken about on this podcast before. Um, Peter Cat much prefers the question, what in me do I need to let die, is the question that he let, guides his Lent with. Um, how do you look at, at what that process is? What's the question you ask yourself every, every Lent for that first half of the great 100 days? Well, so for me, I understand that there's a lot in my ego that does not want to let go. So I want, for me, I want to do something which helps me step out of my habits. Now, that might be choosing not to eat something. It might be choosing to limit the amount of food. It might be choosing to uh, spend an hour a day doing reading. Um, but, But the whole idea of fasting is not penitential. It is to do something that breaks our habitual life and adds an element of intentional reflection because I'm choosing to do this rather than that Mm. for this period called Lent. Mm. And that by my choosing to do this rather than that, I'm also reminding myself how much I want to grow so that I can truly receive the other, so that I can truly like um, and welcome those who are not like me. Uh, Also so that I can truly begin to forgive that which I need to forgive in myself or in another, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it it is in no way, I'm not doing any of this because I feel separated from God or because God is thinking less of me. I'm doing all of it because I know that I am born in love and I want to be more love. Right. So it's so, almost a time of reflecting on whatever it is within us that is keeping us from more love. Keeping us from more, keeping us from being our truly authentic self. Mm. Mm. Keeping us from um, being more concerned about justice. Yeah. All of that, that. So that I want. Um, so I want to do something in the first half which breaks into my habitual life and habitual thinking and just gives me that pause button to remember, oh, this is what my life is really about. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that, that's, and what does the word Lent come from? Where does the word Lent come Actually, from? Actually, the word Lent means to lengthen and it comes from, in the Northern Hemisphere, the fact that light, radiance in the sky is lengthening. 
Okay. Springtime. Right. So Lent is about the, I guess, the lengthening of the, the radiance within us as right. we move back towards love. We right. intentionally take this time to whatever might have taken over us in the previous year, intentionally return closer back towards the light. Right. And um, it's, to, it's to remember who you are. And yeah. the, the first theology of Christianity is something called theosis, which is you are born of the substance of God and you will spend your whole life in a gradual process of transformation to be more true to who you actually are. Yeah, yeah. And this ties wonderfully into your work on the fourfold path, which we did, we did talk about last year on a podcast, that we're constantly moving through this fourfold path of transformation, this inner journey of transformation. And um, when I arrived here in, in this town, which I uh, still can't get the name right in the pronunciation, you'll have to help me out here. What is it again? Mushia. Mushia. Um, we were sitting down and I mentioned to you, I made some comment about my belief that the the engine of the universe seems to be change. And you said you'd want to change that just slightly. Um, what did you say you'd call the engine of the universe? Uh, growth or expansion. Yeah. Probably growth. But that's the pattern of reality. Yeah. Is growth or expansion. And so that's the idea of theosis, that we are constantly becoming more and more love. Right. Yeah. We, are, we come from love to be more love. Hmm. That's, it's and that's, that's the, 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 call, the call to the first half of the hundred days is that mantra. You are love, now be more love. Okay. Yeah, that's wonderful. So if the first half of the hundred days are about us reflecting on what in us maybe needs to, to die so we can become more love, what is the, the second half of the hundred days about? Well, so then, then you've got the three days of Easter. Hmm. Um, and those three days are from sunset on Thursday to sunset on Friday, from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, and sunset on Saturday to sunset on Sunday, uh, the great 72 hours of Easter. Uh, and over those three days today in some of our ritual churches, especially uh, Roman Catholic and Anglican Episcopal uh, and some Lutheran traditions, we do the great rituals of those three days, but we still are doing them out of the thought that we're doing Holy Week, and it's not Holy Week. Okay. <laughs> because we're only doing the Gospel of John, but we've got, it's until you stop doing Holy Week, you can't see what the ancient Easter was. Why? Be because we're so accustomed to the story and we're thinking that we're watching the video cam of what was and we're thinking that this is how it all got started and it's not how it all got started because everything that is done over those three days in the ancient times was done over one night and the theology of good friday good friday's not lent good friday is easter there's nothing sorrowing about Good Friday in the ancient church. It's Easter, and the only gospel that you read on Good Friday is John's Passion. And in John's Passion, Jesus does not suffer. Jesus is not sorrowing. Jesus does not pray that the cup be passed. In fact, a series of times in that gospel, Jesus says, give me the dang cup. Excuse my slang. <laughs> but... Um, Jesus keeps emphasizing, I have come for the cup. There's no equivocation about whether Jesus is going to drink the cup. Mm. In John's passion, Jesus puts himself on the cross. In John's passion, Jesus said, nobody's taking my life from me. I'm giving my life. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross in John's passion, Jesus creates community. He gives the beloved disciple to his mother because this is the great, emphasis of John, how two become one, mm. how those who are not necessarily related become one, uh, because in the spirit, we are all brothers and sisters. And then the great teaching, and I'm so grateful to have Raymond Brown having, having taught me this. Um, uh, my tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, has had its very difficult days, and I understand that. And uh, we have a lot of soul searching to do. But the Roman Catholic tradition is the only one that has got the Gospel of John correct because we have maintained 
that the text should read, when Jesus dies, Jesus bows his head and delivers over everybody else as his spirit. The Roman Catholic tradition goes back to the earliest tradition of Christianity. Jesus bows his head and delivers over the spirit. This moment in the cross is Easter, its death, its resurrection, and its Pentecost. Because when we create wider community, we are doing the work of Pentecost. Pentecost is about opening that door and pulling up one more chair at the table and one more chair and one more chair, not just to sit at the table, but to really be brothers and sisters with the world's diversity. And that's why this gospel of John and the passion in John is Easter, not, not, no, no, no prayer on Good Friday of the Stations of the Cross, a, a sorrowing, beaten down, tribulate Jesus. We've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke for those meditations. This meditation is how, by the power of Jesus the Christ, we too can assume doing the most difficult tasks without counting the cost. And there's two particular parts of the Gospel of John with Jesus on the cross, which are worth mentioning that you, you uh, brought up yesterday. One is him drinking the wine. Well, right. On the cross in John, when the wine is put to Jesus, is he drinks. In the other three Gospels, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole emphasis of this text is that in this is Easter when we agree to drink of the world's bitterness and to transmute it by the power of Jesus the Christ. That there is a reality that can help us take bitterness, rejection, betrayal, unforgiveness, injustice, all of that, and we can deliver back not more of that, but we can deliver love, harmony, beauty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when Jesus breathes out from the cross and says, And he delivers over the Spirit. It takes us right back to the first words of John, where in the beginning is God's breath. Mm. From this moment on the cross is new creation, new relationship, new vitality, new justice, new recreation. And this is the high moment when John's passion is read. We do not go on our knees and we do not strike our breasts. We stand on our feet and we either sing a Gloria or an Alleluia. This is the high moment of the entire four Gospels is this moment, which is death, resurrection and Pentecost. Yeah, that's, it's such a different way to think about it because somebody's being crucified in the story. So in your head, you kind of think that can't be a joyful moment, can oh. it? But it can be. It, absolutely. Yeah. And, and is it, the, I mean, this is the salvific moment that all of us live our lives to be. Yeah. And, and it's also, I, I love this moment and the way John gives it to us because it's also an utterly feminine image. Because at this moment, when they lance Jesus' side, outflows blood and water. And where in human life does blood and water flow out from the body but birthing? Hmm. And the great maternal image. And Jesus, in this way on the cross, is showing us, it, 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 Jesus is showing us the power of birth. Yeah. That we can give our lives in the same way a mother gives her life for a child. You know, it's it's fascinating as you're sharing this, Alexander John. And I'm again I'm captivated by or I can sense how people were captivated by this, you know, thousands of years ago and why it caught fire in the way that it did, because there does seem to be some I think the word the phrase you used yesterday was some regression in us that prefers tribalism to expansion. And we're constantly wrestling with this our whole lives, this um, this sense of finding our people, the right people, being uh, over and above those people and having these sense of divisions. And, and we all sense the ways that this hurts us and harms us and makes life shallower and harsher. And, and then when we're captivated by this call to something bigger, something more expansive, something more unifying, um, it really can take your whole sort of soul alight in a sense. And so this was the early community, was this, this recognition that giving ourselves over and all the things that will keep us from love and unity 
and fellowship, giving those things over completely for a new birth of a new unified life. I, I suppose you can see why um, why this was such a rich festival for so many years and had no real guilt involved at all, just a hell of a lot of joy. <laughs> Blood, sweat, and joy. Yes, but yes. yes. Oh, that could be the title of your book on this. Yeah, Blood, sweat, and joy. joy. I hey, like that. Not bad. <laughs> but, but you're right, because it, it, is, it suggests that there is work involved in living a communal life like this, but that it is what we were primarily created for. So if we go back to the origins of early Easter then, this tribalism was, this dogmatic tribalism, as you call it, was um, tearing these communities apart. The, suddenly what was meant to be the one pan tribal shoulder-to-shoulder tradition had become um, divided. Uh, we're arguing about theology and practice. And this was the ritual to so, sort of gather everybody together at the table and go, no, no, no. Remember, this is about all of us together. That's that our, our theological differences should never overtake felt charity. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when you come to Lent, what are the, and if you're reflecting or journaling in Lent, what are the questions you're asking yourself that maybe people could ask themselves um, when they're approaching the, the Easter week? Uh, so um, in, in the ancient cycle, you've got these great texts from, again, the Gospel of John. Um, and each text is uh, asking us to reflect on how we have participated uh, in some way with something that pulls us away from greater oneness. And the, the second text, uh, which is so important, is Jesus and Nicodemus, where we are asked to look at where Nicodemus is in our life. Uh, Nicodemus is the one who sees the goodness that Jesus does, but has a theological stumbling block to truly receiving the grace of oneness. And there's that whole question in Nicodemus. Nicodemus is stuck in tribal bloodline. Mm. And that whole idea about second birth. Well, here's the real discussion that's going on between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, we all know. My tradition has always taught. For 2,000 years we have taught that you have to have Jewish blood in you to have the privilege of knowing Yahweh. How, Jesus, can you take somebody who is born and put them in a Jewish mother and give them Jewish blood? So this whole thing, I mean, people have gone way out into the ethers on this whole thing about second birth and da-da-da. It's a, it's a tribal question about bloodline. And Jesus right, responds okay. to Nicodemus. You don't know where the wind comes from, Nicodemus. He's basically saying, Nicodemus, stop being so certain about what you think you know, that God's grace is far beyond, beyond even a 2,000-year tribal belief. That what we must all do as we come into the great Linton retreat is stand humbly before each other and humbly before God and say, show me more. Show my tradition more. Show, let us know that tradition has become a stumbling block to truth. <laughs> yes. The ancient ritual at the beginning of the retreat was the bishop who has the staff of authority. Mm. The call to Lent was the bishop calls all the people together in a prayer service and the bishop puts down the staff on the floor and stands back with the people and says, we don't have theologians, we don't have bishops, we don't have hierarchy, we don't have anything in this retreat except that we all humbly come before God and say, show us more. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it interests me that I feel like looking at the, the political, religious, social world that we occupy, um, particularly in the West today, that if you were to come up with a, an annual ritual that we needed more than any other, you would probably say it is a, a ritual like this, some ritual of putting aside all that divides us to find a way for more unity and more love um, and more, more fellowship. And, um, and we have it 
it's sitting right here under this thing that that instead has become you know and, and I, I want to be careful because I realize the the modern celebration of Easter is meaningful for many of us powerful and and so it's not the, a bad the, thing the faith of my childhood that, that yes. held me that birthed me to this yeah 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 so it, it there's an element in which thinking about the, the sacrificial cost of love and thinking about these things are wonderful too and the historical story has its place as well but this original Easter is an entirely different question and it's a question of how do we live with each other and how do we how do we stop tearing ourselves apart how do we actually capture some sense of this unified vision and not end up bitter and divided again and again and again because that person over there brought the wrong salad to the dinner and this person keeps on playing heavy metal rock for, for in my mind, the Easter that we have known largely began to stop working in the way it was designed after World War II. And up to that point, our villages and our churches were a whole community. And, and we all did the rituals together. Okay. And when you come together and you pray together, almost regardless of what you're praying, it has a leavening effect bringing us together into the holy. Mm. So it, though it wasn't perhaps our full intent to do, the, to do the rituals for that, but that's how they were originally crafted. Now, my argument is now we need to return to the, the, to the original Easter because it's what we so desperately need today. Yeah. We don't have people who understand what it takes to form a harmonious community. And so we need to do it mindfully and in, with intention. Hmm. Gosh, this is, it's, it's a really wonderful thing. I remember at the high school I work at, there was some people who came in and ran a retreat. And part of this retreat was that students were given, um, I think it was like an orange ribbon. And the activity was think, reflect for a moment and then go and hand the orange ribbon to somebody you want to apologize to or to mm. forgive. And they sat for a while and I wondered, is anybody going to do this? And then sure enough, within 10 minutes, everybody was up moving, handing these orange ribbons to say sorry or to say, um, I forgive you, one or the other. And it, it, in my head, I'm now thinking that was an Easter ritual. That was a ritual of coming back together, of looking at what it is that has kept us apart, divided us yet again, surrendering them and coming back together with more love and more expansiveness. And maybe that should be an Easter ritual that we could we could work okay. into communities at some point. But um, I'd love to focus on the the three days of Easter in particular and how you ritually um, observe those three days as, as we come towards Easter this year. Um, but I want to ask as well, because you did mention to me at lunch that you, you use ash in a bit of a different way to how ash is used um, with the anointing of ashes on, on Ash Wednesday. That for you, it, it holds a slightly different place in the this traditional Easter celebration. Well, so first of all, the, the ritual of ashes, beautiful, um, is a late development. It's, it for, we've got about 500 years before the idea of ashes as the way to know that we've entered Lent. Um, so let's go back to the, to the um, physiology, biology of ash. What is ash? Um, we know that ash is one of the most powerful nutrients on the planet that uh, for many, many places, if you want to encourage uh, plants growth, you, you would spread with ash. And I remember in those days, right after Mount St. Helens erupted in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, and I was there when that eruption happened, we were amazed at how the forest began to regenerate because the ash was so filled with nutrients. Hmm. So... Lent is about asking for the nutrients to love more. So in the communities that I lead, we don't just ritualize, we don't just bless with ashes once, we bless with ashes each Sunday of Lent, uh, praying the prayer that this ash would be a nutrient on my heart that I might desire to be more love. Hmm. Yeah. Again, so different, isn't it, from... Ashes as a symbol of um, impermanence and ashes as a symbol of death, which yeah. um, is, is true and half the story, um, but maybe not the, the whole story. So that's a, I'm going to use that when I come to, to my future Ash Wednesdays, I think, going forward. 
Um, so when you look at the modern celebration of Ash Wednesday into the modern Lent, into the modern Easter, um, what what good do you see in that in that celebration? Do you do you still see that there is a place for that in the whole story? Um, I I love that people are drawn to receive the ash. I love that people love uh, to have a, a mark of the cross somewhere on their body. Um, I I love the fact that that the cross and the ash are calling us forward to something. I also love to remember that the color for Lent is purple, and purple is not a penitential color. The penitential color is gray or, or, uh, or sackcloth. Mm. Purple is the royal color. And we wear purple in Lent to remind ourselves we are a royal people. We are called forward in the love of being a royal people, all of us in our diversity. Mm. So... Um, there's just so much of Lent with a slight turn. Yes. We don't have to change what we're doing just to bring a different intention to it, to understand how it really was established, which was not about fear of God, but love of God Mm. and love of love. So did the early Easter do the job? You mentioned that these dogmatic tribalisms were tearing the communities apart when they instituted this annual celebration did it do we have records that it, it did um it was effective in bringing these uh these divided communities together effect uh, uh, not perfect <laughs> yeah not perfect at all yeah but effective and we know that christianity from the second through the sixth century exploded across the known world it didn't explode because people were in fear of God. It exploded because people were drawn to the great love of being more love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. Um, so I want to ask you now, a big part of your work, and this comes through your work on Christmas, your work on the fourfold path, is recapturing this ancient idea that the new day begins at sunset um, rather than at sunrise. So uh, you and I have spoken about this a bit over the past few days um, and you've been speaking about this for many, many years that the story of one of the the main arcs of Christmas is that the dark is not where um, radiance or life goes to end. It's where radiance goes to be born again and start again. So we see this in the Jewish tradition that sunset marks the start of the holy day, not sunrise of the following day. So in that instance, the, the celebration of the three days of Easter begins at sundown on Thursday. Um, I'm curious, at the beginning of that celebration there, that's where the day begins, how do you acknowledge the first day of Easter? So the first day of Easter, which is sundown of Thursday to sundown of Friday, has two major prayers in it. And the first prayer is the washing of feet. And then later in the daylight of Good Friday is the... uh, uh, the, the reading and the praying of John's passion, this triumphant, joyous passion of selfless love. Um, and then we come to sundown of Friday, and now we have the day of quiet from sundown of Friday to sundown of Saturday. It's the, the empty day or the quiet day. And it's the day that most of us live in. And it's that day of can we live our lives not seeing results and yet knowing that there's uh, a deep power uh, out of out of sight that that's weaving the great mystery of love Um, and it's i I love quote unquote holy saturday which is um, so much of our life we don't see turnaround we don't see growth Uh, we just see what looks like same old same old and yet can we believe, can we know, more than believe, can we know that there is something that is being transformed out of sight? Mm-hmm. And then sundown Saturday to sundown and then, Sunday is the moment it is. Sundown on Saturday to sundown on Sunday is the great third day. And this night, the great night of Easter, which starts at sundown on Saturday for our ancients, was about our being, um, uh, I mean, 
I, what I'm struggling with is in, in the work that I've written, I've called this night the Great Bridal Chamber. And, and many people have a difficulty with the term. And I'm wrestling to understand a, a metaphor that we can, we can put on this night. Mm. But this night was about the intimacy of our God with us. Right. And it is very sensuous. Um, everything about this night is very sensuous. Um, our God is as intimate to us as our own bodies. And our God is as intimate to us as the intimacy between two humans coming together. And it's, and, and, and it's, in, it's intimate in the way that we see the energies of yin and yang interplaying with each other. So it's this beautiful, beautiful night that leads to third dawn. And third dawn is the next high moment of the three days because at third dawn, we in, in the ancient world, we would uh, proclaim again our baptismal promises, our covenant. This is how we choose to live with each other. This, this is the covenant that we call ourselves to. This is the accountability that we wish to stand before each other as. Mm. And then having done that at dawn, then new ones would be baptized. Sure. And then together, this renewed community would move to the table. And then probably we would all go home for a, a long uh, meal and nap. Yeah, right. So the, it's interesting because you mentioned the the foot washing a few times there as um i have always heard that as a as you mentioned as a story of servant leadership um that that's how it's been taught widely but instead seeing it as a marriage ritual that we celebrate as almost part of the the marriage the wedding between us and the divine and uh, that's a it's such a beautiful image of i suppose coming again to the knowledge that this whole thing is sacred that this is an enchanted life and an enchanted universe and it's us who've forgotten it and now we're remembering it once right. again. Right. Yeah. That's beautiful. When, when we know that spirit is matter and matter is spirit, when we know that, not believe it, but when we know it, we are instinctually compelled to give that love to others. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I'm thinking then as Easter 2023 approaches and people listen to this, in whatever difficulties their own community experiences right now. And um, the one thing that does seem to be true is that the per none of us, are, I don't believe, are living in what we would call a perfect community right now. We can all think of those we struggle with, those we sense struggle with us. Um, we can all sense the people in our journey who there are splits with or fissures with, um, and we don't know about where that, how that could ever be reconciled. And then we all think globally on, a, on an enormous level and you can see the splits between various countries and various political parties and how could those ever be healed? How could we all ever come to the table again in, in any sort of meaningful way? How do you think this story of Easter this year on a really practical level can help move us, shape us, um, heal some of those divisions? Do you, think, do you think it's still this ancient ritual still has the power to, to do that for us today? Um. I, we should not do ritual simply because the ancients did ritual. But we should take what they did and find a way to make it live in us. Uh, they didn't do anything like hand out orange ribbons that I can find. But if we can translate what they did and find those ways to use the meaning of these three days in a way that will touch people today, that will help us lessen our divisions and fall back in love with the oneness of God and the oneness with each other. This is the gift. Yeah. I think for me, for the rest of my life now, you've helped me reframe Christmas to begin with as not a story of one infant's birth, but as the story of um, the new radiance being born in the deep darkness of our lives and the dark being the womb time of God. That's been an, an incredibly powerful reframing. And now you've helped me reframe Easter as not this time to remember a historical event, but as the annual celebration 
Uh, firstly, of remembering whatever it is that is keeping me from greater love and us from greater love. And then secondly, the movement back towards greater and deeper and more expansive love. So um, for those two gifts, I am so profoundly grateful, Alexander. John, I know many other people share this gratitude. I'm also very grateful that you've had me stay here with you for a few nights. We've had some lovely conversations and some um, a minor mishap with the gas earlier, changing the gas <laughs> in the place, but it's been an adventure, hasn't it? <laughs> it has. um, wonderful. So I've got three invitations Yes. Um, to everyone uh, very shortly on the Quadratus website. Um, every springtime, every Northern Hemisphere springtime, every February, March, April, mm. Uh, we put up uh, an, uh, a series of one-hour videos. There are nine in the series that walk people through the spirituality of the Great Hundred Days. They were filmed uh, during the, the Great Hundred Days of 2020 when we mm. had COVID and we could not actually be together. So that's there for people to rent those videos and to go deeper into this spirituality. Uh, next, for those who might wish, uh, come and join me at the Retreat Center in Spain. This year, 2023, we're already full, um, but we're accepting applications for 2024, Easter 2024. And for me, what has the most heart is this October of 2023, we are having a special Easter for ministers of all denominations people who do music ministry, people who do teaching of other, any ministry in a community. Um, if you would like to come to Spain for 10 days, do the retreat and then followed with a couple of days seminar um, to experience this Easter and then to begin to think just early steps, how you can bring it back to some other community. Um, go to the Quadratus website, go to the tab that says communities look under there and you'll see easter click on that and you'll get all the details about both the springtime northern hemisphere springtime easter but particularly the minister's retreat mm -hmm. um, that's only for up to 12 people and we're already half full uh, for this coming october it's a wonderful invitation because often ministers do miss out on anything to do with a uh with Easter because that's the busiest time of the year with so much going on. So to be able to revisit that at a slightly quieter time of year is a profound gift. Um, yeah, because so many have said, oh, we want to know how to do this. We want to know more about this, but we can't come at Easter, obviously. So, yeah. yeah. So head along, get to Spain in October. And then uh, later this Great year. Great time to come to Spain too. Yes, yeah. Beautiful time to come to Spain. Um, and then later this year, all going well, the publication of your next book please. <laughs> so how can people follow you to stay across that with the Quadratus website? Be the best space go to, for that? Go to the Quadratus website and please sign up for what we're now calling the Quadratus Quarterly. I like that. <laughs> uh, and it comes out um, at the beginning of each season. Wonderful. And you'll hear news about the, uh, the currently untitled um, book about Christmas, your long awaited Christmas book. Yeah, we're, I'm still playing with the title and now I'm, I'm looking for a publisher. Yeah, well, that's going to be absolutely thrilling when that comes out as well. Alexander, John, your work has meant so much to so many for, for so long now, and uh, and I, I don't think too many more than me. I'm uh, so grateful for all of it, and uh, it's been a gift to share a conversation here in person looking out over the ocean from this office mm. together, and uh, we will be back with another episode of the podcast shortly. Thank you, Dom.